0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how our world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Wayne Saden, who's an advisor to CEOs and boards about digital business, digital transformation, and the way that that line is blurring. It's just becoming the overall business strategy these days with digitally woven in. Wayne, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Bob. How are you?
0: Real good, Wayne. Thank you. And uh, Wayne, I know from your experience as a CIO, a CTO, a CDO, and now somebody who is advising boards and CEOs on this, I thought it was great your idea for today's episode, uh, you being one of our monthly digital all-stars, your 2020 digital transformation memo to CEOs and boards at looks like an interesting document for somebody to receive. So what do you have in there, Wayne?
1: Well, this is my Christmas present to my clients and potential clients about what to think about next year. You know, we're coming to the beginning of the year, this year comes to a close, new technology has been released this year. So I've got a number of things that I think people ought to focus on. These are things the board or the CEO should be saying to their CIO, what are you doing about these things? And then I have a couple of things at the end that are maybe coal in the stocking, things that maybe aren't ready to talk about, but yet get a lot of press somehow. So let me take the list
0: away if you want. Sure. Yeah. And okay. uh, so, but there, and there's a little coal in the stocking at the end. Okay. That's uh, that in any business like this, there's always some stuff that uh, needs significant new work, uh, additional work.
1: Hey, all technology is not good technology. And as a business person, it's sometimes hard to tell the wheat from the chaff. So here we are.
0: Well, take it away, Wayne. What's your memo about uh, 2020 digital transformation got to say?
1: Well, the first thing is something I've said many times before. It's the subject of technical debt. As a reminder, technical debt is all the stuff you should have been doing to upgrade your IT, but you haven't done. The longer you wait, the worse it gets. And remember why technical debt matters. It matters because from a security perspective, you can get hacked. Remember my example of the World War II fighter that still takes off fighting a Chinese or a Russian MiG. That's where you as a CEO or a board member might find yourself in 2020 if you aren't bringing your technology up. Um, Particularly, you should be looking at your network. Everything we do these days depends on massive amounts of data, whether it's video data like we're doing here, or it's data coming to employees' desks from Internet of Things or analytics or graphics. And many companies, legacy companies particularly, live in the world of old networking, networks that were relatively slow and built with the idea that the data center was at the middle and all of us connected. Anybody remember green screens? Networks are still built as though there was a mainframe and green screens, but that's not the real world. So the, the buzzword for the CEO and the board to remember is SD-WAN, software defined wide area network. Put the jargon aside, what that says is let's build a flexible network out of internet building blocks the same stuff that comes to your home, the same stuff that Microsoft and Google and Amazon use to run their data centers. As a company, replacing a 10, 15 year old network with SD-WAN, you can get, here, I'll give you an example. One of my clients, the network I'm sitting at now is 15 times faster than it was last week and about 30% cheaper. And so just do the math on that and that should tell you that something is afoot. So so that's the first thing. Your security model follows your network model. The security is not the data center in the middle and all of us connecting. It's our data, our assets are here and there. They're in this cloud, in that cloud, in a partner's cloud, in a joint ventures cloud. So make sure your security folks are getting the love to be building a security model that follows this world of Internet where the center of the universe is you, the employee, or you, the machine tool, or you, the vehicle, and the security then goes outward from that. That, That's the first thing to be uh, working on. The second thing in technical debt is hybrid cloud. You've heard me say hybrid cloud was not something I was a big fan of before, because hybrid cloud, by the way, is the idea that you can take the Microsoft, the Google, the Amazon stuff, and somehow magically put it in your data center. And now up to now, that was a collection of marketing wear. it was a piece of software from vendor A and a box from vendor B. And when you put them together, what did you get? Nothing. You got something that sounded good on paper, but did not give you flexibility, scalability, standardization. So what's happened lately is Microsoft, Google and Amazon have all introduced devices that allow me to buy hardware or hardware and software and put them in my data center and quite literally run them as an extension of that vendor's cloud. So in Microsoft, it's called Azure Stack. I can put the software in my data center. I can have stuff running in the cloud. And from the perspective of my users, I can move them from my data center to the cloud relatively seamlessly. So I'm not having to kludge stuff up. Um, There's too many things in the market called that I call fake cloud. They sound like cloud. They may look like cloud to the uninitiated. But they don't give you the benefits; they just add complexity and cost. But in 2020, we're finally seeing the evolution. So, as a CEO, as a board member, don't be afraid. Build the technology in your shop to get out of technical debt, and then bring that into the hyperscale cloud family.
0: So Wayne, a couple of thoughts on that too. Uh, you know, very well said there about the the technical debt, and it's not going to get better. And I, I think about that sort of as a parallel to the traditional financial debt, you know, the interest compounds with technical debt, right? As mm-hmm. you said, it won't just stay the same. It gets worse and worse and worse.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And think about one thing. It's, there's a balloon payment due. <laughs> the balloon payment may be your systems come crashing down around your ears. The balloon payment may be the ransomware that holds your data for ho- hostage. The balloon payment may be when it all falls down. And so it's not just an ever-increasing debt that you can lay off on some third party, eventually that will get you. And the question you're betting on when you're a CEO or a board member or CIO is, is it going to happen in my tenure? Could I skate over that and wait till my successor has to deal with it? But to your point, it just gets worse. Okay.
0: Okay, Wayne. Yeah, well well said there. And then the second point, you gave a good overview of the hybrid cloud and the sort of the ramp into the future that that provides away from the issues surrounding technical debt and allowing people to operate across all the different you know flavors that environments today have there's a, a similar theme Wayne that we've heard about a lot multi cloud and I think some cases whether it's either the vendor community doesn't articulate it well enough or sometimes uh, business people attempting to get their hands around some of these terms with cloud technology don't Uh, get them distinguished properly. How do you differentiate what hybrid cloud and multi-cloud are and what's your feeling on the relative merits of the two?
1: Well, the only thing they have in common is they both have the word cloud in them, but they're completely different. Hybrid cloud is an on-ramp to a particular vendor's cloud. You buy Microsoft or Oracle or Amazon pieces and that helps you as an IT person get your company onto the cloud more easily, more flexibly. Multi-cloud is the idea that if one cloud is good, two clouds are better, which again makes three clouds are even better, four clouds are even better. The assumption is, of course, what if all of Microsoft failed? What if all of Amazon failed? What if all of vendor A fails? Sure, it's possible. When we have phone systems coming into our buildings, we often have multiple vendors. So I may have AT&T and Verizon. What if AT&T fails? These things happen But you have to ask yourself, what's the cost of preparing for a failure? So if I am in the Microsoft or Amazon or Google ecosystem, what I do to protect myself as an IT professional is I don't put all my eggs in one basket. They all have data centers scattered around the United States and scattered around the world. So if I want to protect my data, I say to Microsoft, Amazon, or Google, I want my data stored on the West Coast of the U.S., And I also want some of it on the East coast and maybe I want some of it in Europe. Maybe I want some of it in Asia. And so you can buy replication keeping multiple copies and you can even buy a distributed environment. I'm going to have a server in Mumbai. I'm going to have a server in Madrid and they're both talking to the same data. And so in theory, that will give you that kind of backup unless all of Google, all of Microsoft, all of Amazon completely crashes. Could it happen? Absolutely. For most of us, the chances of it happening are so small and the cost of protecting against it completely are so large. Here's why. When I make a decision to go with Microsoft or Google or Amazon, I'm committing to their philosophy. When you buy any large software product, if I'm buying Oracle or SAP, I've bought into their way of life, their way of thinking. And so to have a system that allows me to support both SAP and Oracle, I've got to train everybody twice. If I want to be in two clouds, I have two ways of doing everything. I have two bills to pay. I have to make sure that my servers are balanced between the two sites. I'm probably way overpaying, buying the same thing in place A and place B. Many, many years ago, you're a database guy, I think, at some point in your career. Everybody said, I want to write every program to run on Oracle and IBM interchangeably and so what we created was a database that was bad on IBM and bad on Oracle but it was completely interchangeable so every single day we paid the price in complexity in performance and in cost just in case oracle went out of business or ibm went out of business guess what they didn't so while it's entirely possible to protect yourself and and some people may need that if you're running nation state level mission critical can't go down. I don't care if the world ends, you may need it. But for the 95% of us that live in the world I live in, you are spending an awful lot of money to protect yourself against something that is a very small probability of happening. So while multi-cloud is great in theory and one day may be approachable, today it's still buy one, buy two, and glue them together. So I would not recommend it for most environments, most applications, and most users.
0: Okay, Wayne, that a great distinction of those two points. And also, thanks for your, uh, your opinions on both of those uh, much talked about approaches these days. And if I could, Wayne, one uh, follow up on that. So you've mentioned some of the, the big vendors in there. Uh, this week, we at CloudWars had named Thomas Curian, the CEO of Google Cloud, as our CEO of the year. What are you hearing about Google Cloud? And does that choice resonate with you?
1: Well, I think it was an excellent choice to award Thomas Kurian the CEO of the year because as far as I'm concerned, he put Google into the business of supplying cloud to enterprises. Here's what I mean. If you're just dabbling in cloud and your low-level techies are playing with the cloud, I want to put some stuff in the cloud, I'm a new company, that's easy. You get some techies, they get support from Google or Amazon or Microsoft. It's by email, by web chat, great. Now you're an established company you're going to commit to putting 10 figures of your IT budget into somebody's cloud. The way it works in most of these companies is they have a dedicated IBM account rep or a Microsoft account rep, SAP account rep, Oracle account rep. These are companies that have spent decades, 50 years in some cases, honing that executive level support, that enterprise support to major customers. The cloud upstarts. Amazon started with, hey, let's do this as a side business. Google is even more, I want to say, techie and uninvolved in the high level of the business of the customers than Amazon. So Oracle, to me, was a viable cloud player, even though they didn't have a lot of infrastructure to support your high-end apps. Microsoft is a viable player because they support the executive interface, the management interface. The Googles and the Amazons, as far as I was concerned, were not ready to support an enterprise customer that didn't wanna change everything about the way they use technology just to fit in. So now with Thomas Kurian moving from Oracle, who's got 50 years of customer support experience into Google that has the technical chops that deliver super technology, you've now got the best of both worlds. So you've got all of that customer support and all of that technology and investment money. And I believe that you'll see in 2020, the model will come together where a large client running a heavy duty workload, six figures, I mean, seven figures, eight figures, nine figures will be comfortable enough to make that transition into the Google cloud because of the discipline Thomas Kurian is bringing to that company. So it's a terrific hire. It's a terrific choice you made. And I think it's terrific for those of us that see the cloud as a place to put mature workloads. Mm
0: -hmm. Wayne, one just quick follow up on that, you know, in my, uh, conversation last week with Thomas one of the points that he brought out you know quite forcefully was the notion that you can be a company like Google and Google Cloud and have the you know incredible world-class technology which is all a great thing but if you're not able to apply that out in the real world of customers in ways that are relevant to and sort of cater to the specific needs and desires or as he said the aspirations of those different companies you know, you're, you're just not going to help them that much because you're going to see things from you, the vendor's point of view, instead of from the customer's point of view.
1: Absolutely. And when you think about what we have to recognize is when you read about technology, you get the articles in the popular press about somebody doing something cool with cloud. What you're typically seeing is a Silicon Valley startup, a young new company, or somebody that's breaking all the molds go to a large industrial company, a manufacturer, an airline, an auto manufacturer, a chemical company. They are not looking to be an IT company. They are looking to make chemicals or cars or put people on airplanes. They are not ready to change the DNA of the company from the CEO on down to adapt themselves to the way Amazon does business or Google does business. And by the way, because they spend a billion or two on IT, they don't feel like they have to. And so the techies have been forcing this from the bottom up, but there's been no comfort that if I made the decision to give my business to a Google, to an Amazon, I would be taken care of as an enterprise customer. Microsoft, we felt relatively comfortable because they've got some history, but they've typically not worked at the very highest levels of the very largest companies. Now, Microsoft is changing that. I think they're now an enterprise-worthy competitor. Amazon is not there yet because they don't have the DNA. And Google, I always put at the bottom of the list because they were so tech-focused and so seeming to lack a business reason for doing the cool stuff that I was always afraid that either Google would not take care of me or Google might just decide, nah, we don't want to do this anymore and stop doing it. Having a committed executive who's got a track record and can motivate the troops And reassure the customers, I think, will be the best thing Google ever did in the cloud business. And we'll see them really stealing a lot of opportunities from people that are either enterprise-ready without the backbone, or backbone-ready without the enterprise. It's a great combination of resources.
0: Yeah, Wayne, great point. Thanks for that. And, uh, you know, bet your your 2020 memo to uh, about digital transformation to CEOs and boards. You mentioned a couple things too here about some applications that touch the C-suite very closely there, the cloud ERP and CRM. What do you see yes. coming?
1: Well, so we're, we're working from the bottom up, fix your technical debt, help that gets you moving into the cloud, get into hyperscale cloud with, with your, uh, put the real interest in it. It's ready to go. And now what do you run on it? And so, if you're running an old ERP, you've got a 20 or 30 or 40 year old ERP, or maybe a collection of software all stitched together, it's time to consider a cloud ERP, a SaaS ERP, a Microsoft product, um, a Salesforce product, and then niches, the, niche the Workdays, and some of the uh, net suites. Look at these vendors that have now said more than I'm gonna take my legacy package and dump it into a computer that I run, the cloud, their cloud, a fake cloud option, and they have rebuilt their products to work in the fabric of this very scalable, very flexible, very standards-based, very fast upgrade, fast moving product called the cloud. So again, I know Microsoft better than the others. They've got a CRM package. They've got an ERP package that are both built on top of a strong database, a scalable security model. They've got an analytics capability and Power BI. Uh, they've got a Cosmos database under it for analytics, and they support a low-code, no-code product. And and I can't say enough about that. The world of having digital experts with PhDs to write business code, and by this, I don't mean the code that's in an airplane or the code that's in a Tesla or the code that runs Google. The stuff we use to post a general ledger transaction, and now I need it posted a little differently. That knowledge can be encapsulated in a low code tool. And there are many tools out there in the market. I can go buy tools from many vendors. But imagine I've got a an, uh, an, uh, system, a CRM or an ERP that has all that productivity packaged in, and then I can extend it. My programmers or even my end users can add a piece. If my accounts payable system needs to track shoe size from now on, I can add shoe size that rolls through the entire system, goes in one end, out the out the back, and is managed by the ERP for me. So being able to combine all these little things we have to do with the core of our ERP means a business can buy a product, get it upgraded as part of the purchase, not worry about the infrastructure. If they, if they acquire or divest, they can scale up and scale down, And at the same time, they can extend it and add functionality without breaking the coat. Anybody that's ever done a big ERP knows they spend probably as much on customization as on software. And then technical debt comes in because they don't realize that every year they have to keep spending that. And so by moving to a SaaS hyperscale cloud, modern ERP, I can buy the product pay their, annual, their monthly fee, upgrade it, maintain it, and I'm not creating technical debt at that rate. I still will. If I create undocumented functions, there's a little bit. But the dangerous part is being moved out into the vendor's abstraction layer. And so if you're the business person, what I'm telling you is it's time to make an investment in software that'll carry you for the next 10 or 20 years without accumulating the barnacles that have accumulated over the last 20 years it's time to make that move. Now, if you can't do that, you're not ready for that investment, which is a seven, eight, nine figure investment, take a look at something else. We have technology that the sexy term is robotic process automation, RPA. All RPA is, is code that goes, this field is on this screen, let's type it into this screen. And by the way, if it's more than eight, make it red. And if it's less than eight, make it blue. And so you program all the things that you have a clerk typing in what we call a swivel chair interface. <laughs> Read it here, type it there. Read it here, type it there. RPA is, is kind of a repackaging of what we used to call workflow or we used to call BPM, business process manage, management or modeling, business, pa- business process application or automation. It's old wine in new bottles and, and they're a little different, but at the bo- bottom, they're all the same. How do I take the steps that my clerks, my field people are doing and put some automation into them to save audit costs, to save time in the field, to save labor, to improve accuracy and and reduce the cost per transaction? By working through your processes, by the way, and starting to automate and improve them, now you're laying the groundwork for your ERP. When I work with my clients, an ERP is, say, 12, 18 months away. So in the interim, don't do nothing. In the interim, fix your processes. Don't fix your processes by writing them on a piece of paper and sending them to a big four vendor. Fix them by actually changing something. Now your people get used to the changed process. And so when you introduce an ERP suite with better screens and cooler tech, the people working it just see, oh, that screen's easier. That screen has help. That screen has better graphics. That screen is better integrated. And so there's nothing wrong with crawling, walking, and running from broken processes, broken software, to better processes, better software, to the processes you want with the software you can live with for a long time. We're getting to the point in 2020 where you can do either or both of those things. And if you wait very much longer, the technical debt monster that we talked about comes and gets you. You're not going to be able to compete with people that are either putting in brand new software, because they're startups, or are able to make those digital leaps. And so that's, I think, the key to the um, CRM and ERP in
0: the cloud. And Wayne, in addition to the technical debt angle that you've uh, articulated here very nicely, there's also the notion that, as you said, some of these things that were written and installed 10, 15, 20 years ago, at that point, they were meant to do certain things, certainly never imagining that those could handle the way you know, digital business runs here in, uh, you know, at the dawn of 2020. They were never intended to do this, and they're incapable of it, yet that's what the business environment demands today, right?
1: That's exactly right, Bob, and that just makes things worse, because an IT department rarely says no, especially to the C-suite. So, if you have a product that's designed to run on a monthly cycle, every month you get a new version, you know, report, every week, and now you say, I want to build a real-time e-commerce system on top of that. Uh, One of two things generally happens. Either they buy a product over here, and they run their e-commerce, and their supply chain is still on the old batch update system, and they get out of whack, or they cut into the old system and start messing with it to make it a different system. And so you wind up to your point with a system designed with a monthly or weekly posting cycle, and now you want it to be updated in real time across the world. So neither case is that a good option. The new model software, any new software is going to probably be more flexible than what it replaced. But today with the cloud, with hyperscale particularly, I can mix and match. I, there's lots of other technology, containerization, micro segmentation, I could spit buzzwords for an hour, but your IT people recognize that the new stuff can be glued together more easily and pieces can be replaced more, uh, more quickly because they all sit on this fabric called the hyperscale cloud. And so I can mix and match the parts much more easily. It's kind of like when we went to mass, to uh, uh, industrial manufacturing from a, uh, one artisan building a horse and buggy. Now we've got an assembly line. The cloud gives you, in a sense, that assembly line to put a software component in and a software component in. And oh, I want to pull that one out and replace it with a newer one when something comes along. So you're absolutely right. The technical debt using old software. Limits your optionality. That's a term I use with my clients. The ability to say, this is what I want to do, go make it happen, is lost if your software is brittle, inflexible, undocumented, old. It's a matter of being able not just to protect against the hackers and the software crashing, but it's the ability to protect against somebody Amazoning you or Ubering you or Airbnbing you out of
0: existence because you can't move fast enough. Yeah. So Wayne, if you could uh, you know, rep, replicate yourself 10,000 times, you, know, you could be present in the boardroom to help guide some of these, every company along the way. But uh, since either you're probably not real excited about doing that, um, you've suggested this notion of the QTE for boards. Yes. Again, uh, tell us a little about that.
1: I don't wanna claim credit. Russell Reynolds actually coined the term about four years ago. And it comes from the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation that uh, went into effect in 2011, Um, sorry, 2001. Um, 18 years ago, it was recognized with Enron and WorldCom that members of the board couldn't read a financial statement. So Sarbanes-Oxley mandated a QFE, a qualified financial expert, be appointed to every public company board. And the idea was there'd at least be somebody that could read the financials. And then of course they made them legally on the hook for making sure certain things didn't happen. So board governance got more teeth and expertise was mandated. So now fast forward, you know, 16, 17 years, Russell Reynolds said it's time for somebody just like the financial person that we put on the board to put an IT person, not a digital creative person, not a Disney person, although some companies do need them, but somebody that understands technical debt has run a disaster plan and had it succeed or fail, implemented an ERP system, can understand all the jargon. So when you're sitting on the board and you're either hearing about a process problem in your company or you're sitting on the board and you're hearing about cybersecurity issues or you're sitting on the board and talking about innovation, there's somebody who is both a business person and a technology operations person and innovation person who can guide the actions of the board. So I will put in a plug for the Digital Directors Network. That is a group in California that is training and certifying qualified technology experts. I was a member of the first class they did in San Francisco a month or so ago. About 20 of us took the class, and I believe they're teaching a series of classes around the United States and ultimately around the world. And so we're trying to create a cadre of people that are IT experts that understand the role of the board, the duties of the board, the difference between management and governance, how to work with the board, so that there are people ready made when the board needs us to step in and help with the risk and the opportunity side. And so, yes, I'd love to be on every one of your boards, but I can't. So there's plenty of me about to be created and boards should be thinking about adding that skill set.
0: Great, Rainn. Well said. uh, The qualified technical expert. And as you have very aptly put it here, these people coming in, not trying to give technical lectures, but understanding what is going on with technology strategy from the point of view, as you've said, of the board of directors. How do I speak to this board in their language, in their context about these things that are going to affect that business more and more and more into the future?
1: Absolutely. And in the boardroom, there's no place to be talking about bits and bytes any more than you want to talk about tax law, or you want to talk about the new gap and what peekaboo has just done. This is not the place for the technical discussion. This is the place for governance, oversight, and, and guidance. And so we all as managers have to recognize that being a, serving on a board is a different role. Many IT people are type A, hands-on, we're going to go in and fix something. So are many other people that serve on boards. We've got to learn, and the boards have to learn too, that not every IT person is, to put it bluntly, a geek. Some of us think mostly about the implications of technology for business, just like a good CFO is not adding up the numbers. They're thinking about the implications of financial markets, the implications of capital structure, the implications of how their operation runs for uh, achieving the aims, the long-term objectives of the shareholders. So I think that's the key. There's a, It's a two-way street. The IT people are often not board ready, but the boards are afraid, I think, that somebody that is narrowly focused and single-minded is going to infiltrate the board and derail a very high-level governance conversation. It is not true. It's not the way it works. Give us a chance. Meet us. You'll find we're not that bad.
0: <laughs> Wayne, Wayne nicely said there. So, uh, the the final item in your memo to uh, CEOs and boards for 2020, you talk about some things that you feel are overhyped.
1: Yep, just a couple of things. Multi-cloud, of course, we already talked about. That was on my hype list. Everybody's writing about it. Everybody's talking about it. But but the two that really I think are important to the C-suite is to you keep hearing about blockchain we've been hearing about it for 10 years. Whether it's cryptocurrency or the notion that somehow blockchain is going to make all of our transactions secure, that is a solution in search of a problem. Every time somebody brings you a blockchain idea, ask them, how did we do it before? Or how would you do it without blockchain? I hear we need blockchain so we can do financial transactions. Do you realize that banks were clearing checks by carrying them in horse-drawn wagons to meeting points called clearinghouses? By the way, if you know what ACH stands for, it's Automated Clearing House. That literally came from probably a place where people drank beer and brought their checks in ox carts and swapped them. I didn't need blockchain for that. I don't need blockchain to do MasterCard transactions. I don't need blockchain to operate if I'm selling something to Walmart. So so ask yourself the question, is blockchain overcomplicating something for the value I get? Maybe one day there'll be a problem that's perfect for solving, but right now every problem that's been brought to me, I found a cheaper, simpler, easier way to solve. So that's one. And the other one that you see in all the press is 5G. I'm a big fan of mobility. I'm a big fan of wireless and what's going on with what's called gigabit LTE. The ability to drive high bandwidth over your cell cell service is terrific. And 5G one day will be a terrific product as well. It's operating in the lab at 10 times the speed of traditional cell phones. It's just not ready yet. There are uh, fights about whether we're going to use what's called millimeter or sub 6G. So there's two standards. Um, They're very different in in frequency and performance and how they work. So what does your carrier support? In different countries, different parts of the spectrum have been allowed. So you've got that nationality problem. It's not a worldwide standard in terms of how it's being adopted. One day, it will be a terrific product if they get the kinks out of it. But if your IT people are coming to you now and going, 2020, 5G, ask them to explain how that's going to scale and grow and be a good investment for the future. So I think there's a couple of things to watch for but most everything else on my list is a terrific opportunity for the business to engage with their technologists, to be building that future, lower risk, lower labor cost, and more flexibility that every business should be striving for in an economy like ours with very low unemployment, still pretty robust growth, and lots of technical opportunity to either win or lose.
0: Wayne, great stuff there. Nice overview for 2020. Just a final thought. Are you optimistic about uh, the coming year and the way that uh, that interplay between, you know, CEOs and boards and technology is moving along?
1: Well, I'm very optimistic because I think if CEOs and boards don't get it, very quickly, they're going to get run over by the ones that do. You're starting to see a groundswell. More CIOs on boards, more boards taking an active interest in technology. Um, more technology able to be deployed by smaller companies. Uh, one little thing I, I didn't mention, it used to be that the fast technology was kind of an oxymoron. The people who could afford it, the big companies with extra data center capacity, move slow. The small companies that move fast couldn't afford this stuff, six-figure, seven-figure, eight-figure investments. Hyperscale cloud allows me to flip a switch in Google or Microsoft or Oracle and get machine learning and get Internet of Things, and get virtual reality, or augmented reality, or mixed reality, as Microsoft calls it. So all of a sudden, my acquisition cost has gone from a big capital slug to uh, buy the drink. And I can flip a switch, try it. And if one cloud doesn't do it, I can go to the other. There's maybe the multi-cloud in a sense. If Microsoft doesn't have the product I want, I can switch to Google. So there's nothing wrong with saying This service runs in Google, and that service runs in Amazon. I I should clarify. And so it used to be that a big company made the big investment, put in the big data center, hired the expensive IT people, and they were ready to rock and roll. If they could only decide what to rock and roll with, with, the bureaucracy. But they were steamrolling the small, more nimble companies who couldn't afford to make the investment in labor saving, productivity improving, customer service enhancing. Well, guess what? The playing field is now leveled. And so I'm very optimistic that the companies that get it that are mid-sized legacy companies will quickly grow. The legacy companies that don't get it are going to be run over. And so I think we'll see a very different landscape a year, two, three years from now. We'll see the haves and the have-nots on either side of the digital divide.
0: So much of that, too, Wayne, as you just put it, is going to be driven by the capabilities and the the outlook of those CEOs and the board, as you have put it. So, uh, Wayne, a great overview. Thanks for the strategic outlook into the coming year. And uh, thank you again so much for being part of the Digital All-Stars here on Cloud Wars Live.
1: Thank you, Bob. It's been a terrific year, and I look forward to doing this next year.
0: Thanks, Wayne. And thanks to all of you folks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We look forward to seeing you next time.